Friday, June 24th, 2011. Just before we get started, i got a couple of comments to make. There were a couple of setbacks this month for the Jewish agenda to control free speech. The first one was at Yale University. NBCConnecticut.com reports on um, June 9th, 2011 that the Anti-Defamation League is balking at Yale's decision to eliminate its course of study on anti-Semitism. Imagine that as a college course. A faculty review committee said the five-year-old Yale initiative for the interdisciplinary study of anti-Semitism did not meet its standards on research and teaching. That, that's just incredible, but it, it's good to see that some academics somewhere stood up to the Jewish agenda for some reason, I, I don't know what the undercurrents are going to be yet. I'm going to try to keep tabs on it, but I think that it's it, it's pretty funny. The Jews are saying things like, this is a big deal and a major travesty. And, and that's Ken Marcus, director of the Initiative to Combat Anti-Semitism and Anti-Israelism in America's educational systems at the Institute for Jewish and Community Research. Notice it's not Jewish community research, it's Jewish and community research. It, it, you may as well say the, the Institute for, for Jews to Trick Gentiles. And, and basically that's what, what's, what, well, what always goes on. But I, I thought it was funny that Yale actually stood it up to the Jewish agenda. And, and we'll see how long it lasts. I, I don't have it lasting long, but it, it shows that somebody somewhere is thinking. Another one is even better, and, and this is a um, – it's on the front page right now of the Saxon Messenger and my mind comp site. It, it's an article from the National Journal entitled, The Day in Madrid When Revolution for Human Rights Was Put Into Motion. On June 3, 2011, the Spanish Supreme Court in Madrid ruled that disseminating national socialist ideology and disputing the so-called Holocaust – is no longer an offense. Prosecution is prohibited, even if disputing the Holocaust is of direct relevance to the dissemination of national socialist ideology. The presiding judge, Dr. Adolfo Prego, clearly condemned the prosecution, saying that advocating an ideology is not punishable, no matter which ideology is involved. I don't think this is going to spread a fire across Europe. Um, from, from what I understand, certain German officials are already up in arms. But it's nice to see somebody in Europe standing up to the Jews and understanding that free speech should basically be applied to all speech. So, so that's a, a small victory and, and a... Um, a setback for the Jewish agenda to, to suppress free speech and, and all possible criticism of, of their treachery everywhere, which is basically uh, all of the Jewish attacks on free speech only happen so that they could continue to cover for their, their, their crimes. Jewry being the world's oldest crime ring. 
Discussing Matthew chapter 12 last week, I think the principal lesson was the difference between Christ's interpretation of the law and the interpretation of the law by the Pharisees. The Pharisees would claim to uphold the minute letter of the law to the greatest extremes and often to the detriment of the common people. On the other hand, the Pharisees were guilty, and and Christ won't really get into this until Matthew chapter 23, but on the other hand, the Pharisees were absolutely guilty of ignoring some major points to the law. Straining out a gnat, they were swallowing camels. We have plenty of these same people claiming to be Christian identity today. The examples in Matthew chapter 12, which were set by Christ, show that first, we must have a care for the predicament and the needs of our brethren when they are in distress, and then we have a care for the law. Our brethren are more important than the letter of the law. The law is our ideal. But since we all fail to live up to it, We are grateful to have mercy in Christ. We must treat our brethren with the same mercy which we treat, which we ourselves expect from him at our own judgment. Therefore, Christ, quoting Hosea, this is Old Testament, exclaimed that it is mercy I desire and not sacrifice. I hope to treat of this topic at length. From Paul's epistles, especially his epistle to the Romans and his epistle to the Galatians, at the next Christagenia.net open forum on Monday. This leads to another point, which we saw Yahshua make in, in Matthew chapter 12, and that's at Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, where he said that, And a lot of people in Christian identity sadly just don't get this. They want to deny the plain words of Christ, where he said that for this reason I say to you, every error and blasphemy shall be remitted or forgiven for men. But the blasphemy of the Spirit shall not be remitted or forgiven. Last week I said, and I will elaborate it again here, that there are people who claim to be Christian identists who deny the words of Paul, where Paul plainly says that all Israel shall be saved. They deny the words of Isaiah, where Isaiah wrote Yahweh's promise that all the seed, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. We'll be reading that chapter again here tonight. These same Pharisees, while they want to throw their own Israelite brethren into the lake of fire, they themselves do things such as engage in usury, enrich themselves by trading Jewish securities. They sell snake oil, or they engage and enrich beasts in business. These Pharisees are no better than the Judean Pharisees or the Roman Catholics. They need to extract the beans from their own eyes. Here Christ says, and I will quote the King James Version, that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. 
Salvation is not for good boys and girls, but rather salvation is for the entire race of Israel exclusively. That is the foundation of understanding the promises in Christ, because that is the express purpose behind his ministry, and every promise of salvation made by God through the prophets is to all of Israel and Israel exclusively. Yahweh promised to cleanse all the sin of Israel, and he makes no exception advocating integration and the mingling of Israel with non-Israelites, one blasphemed the Holy Spirit. There's much more to the gospel. There's much more to the responsibilities of the true Israel of God as a people. But we cannot proceed. We cannot move forward without first having a firm foundation in the racial covenants of our God. All Israel shall indeed be saved, whether the Pharisees and the Catholics like it or not. And there shall indeed be weeping and gnashing of teeth. With that, I will start Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. In the day that Yahshua departing from the house sat by the sea, I'm sorry, in that day, Yahshua departing from the house sat by the sea. And many crowds gathered to him, so as for him boarding into a vessel to sit, and all the crowds stood upon the shore. And he spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower is come out for which to sow. And upon his sowing, then some fell by the road, meaning some seed, and having come, the birds devoured them. But others fell upon the rocks, where they had not much earth, and immediately had sprung up on account of not having deep earth. And upon the rising of the sun they were scorched, and on account of not having any roots they withered. And others fell upon the thorns, and the thorns rose up and strangled them. But others fell upon the good earth and provided fruit, some a hundredfold, then some sixty, and some thirty. He having an ear must hear. Christ himself shall explain this parable below, and we shall withhold comment until we can read his explanation. Verse 10. And coming forth, the students said to him, For what reason do you speak in parables to them? And replying, he said to them, Because to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. But to those it is not given. For he who has, it shall be given to him, and he shall have abundance. But he who does not have, even that which he has, shall be taken away from him. For this reason I speak to them in parables, because seeing they shall not see, and hearing they shall not hear, nor shall they understand. And the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled to them which says, by hearing you shall hear, and by no means should you understand. And looking you shall look, and by no means should you see. For the hearts of this people are grown fat, and with the ears they hear with difficulty, and their eyes have closed, that at no time should they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand in their hearts, 
that they should repent, and I shall heal them. But blessed are your eyes, that they shall see, and your ears, that they shall hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things which you see, and they did not see. And to hear the things which you hear, and they did not hear. Many Christian identists, in order to make a point to the uninitiated or to the newly initiated, at times tend to oversimplify certain aspects of Scripture. I myself have, of course, also been guilty of doing so, and I will probably not be able to avoid doing so again in the future. That's just the way it is. We have to tailor our message for our audience, and sometimes it's difficult to do. Reading this passage, most identists explain that Christ did not want the Canaanite, Edomite, Judeans to understand him. And that is true, but it is only partially true. Going back to the original passage that Christ is quoting, let us read that first from Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read all of Isaiah chapter 6. It's a short chapter. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah, the king of Judah, died, I, Isaiah, saw also Yahweh sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain, or two, he covered his seat, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off of the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of Yahweh saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, meaning the people of Judah, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Yahweh, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. Remember, this is entering into a time of punishment for the children of Judah and the children of Israel. So that's the context that these words are being spoken in. And Yahweh has removed men far away, the deportations, 
and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. As an aside, I would translate verse 13 quite differently, and, and I've studied this verse, the Hebrew, and, and it's probably not perfect because I'm not a Hebraist, but I would study where it's speaking in verse 13 about, I mean, I would translate where it's speaking in verse 13 about the remnant of Judah returning to the land. I would write it, yet a tenth will return and be kindled. And we saw that over 42,000 people returned. And a pillar of oak, a pillar of oak in order to be a monument, because of this selling, the holy seed will be a monument, uh, meaning that the, the true people of Judah, that they are going to fall but they would leave a monument for that reason. I believe they fell because they followed the Edomites and the Canaanites. And anyone who didn't convert to Christianity and flee the land suffered greatly for it. We know from Jeremiah, for instance, from Jeremiah chapters 2 and chapter 24, and from Ezekiel, for instance, from Ezekiel chapter 16, that Judah, at the time of the prophets, was also a race-mixed population. There were Canaanites there. There were Kenite scribes. There were Edomite infiltrators. There were the Shelahites of Judah's Canaanite daughter. They're all in Judah. They're all in, in various parts of Judea in, to one degree or another. That's why Ezekiel said that your, your mother, birth and nativity from the Hittites and, and the Amorites in, in Ezekiel 16. I'm paraphrasing, of course. That's why Jeremiah says in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, Yahweh says that he planted a pleasant plant and it became a strange vine unto him. And, and we see that Israel wasn't perfect either, but there was race mixing in Judah. much like there was in first century Judea also, which was a mixed-race population, Judahites and Benjaminites and Levites and Edomites and other assorted Canaanites. And for that reason, Judah was deemed by Yahweh to consist of both good and bad figs, the story of Je Jeremiah chapter 24. Yet Isaiah in giving this prophecy concerning blindness, he was talking to the people in general and not to any specific group among the people. There are races of people here who do not belong in the kingdom of heaven at all, as we learn, and we shall see here from the parables of the net and, and the parable of the wheat and the tares later in this chapter of Matthew. Certainly, Yahshua does not want them to understand. However, us... In our own uncleanness, we ourselves do not deserve the truth of the word of God. As we see that here in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, where Isaiah, he said that he couldn't receive this word because he had unclean lips and, and dwelt amongst a, a people with unclean lips. Therefore, it is clear that a lot of us, our own people, and as well as our enemies, are to remain blind as to the purposes of our God. 
and, and in our sin, we deserve that blindness. The example here is primarily that Yahweh himself chooses out from among his people those who shall see and hear and learn his truths. The rest of the people, whether they be his or not, is really immaterial. Whether they be Israel or not is really immaterial. The rest of the people, they remain blinded for as long as it is determined by him. Of course, the Edomites are, are never going to become unblind. They don't have the capacity to see and, and the other races. Well, well, the children of Israel who do not heed the word of Yahweh, he, relinquish, he relinquishes them to the enemy. For that reason, and I'll use one example, Paul, speaking of unrepentant sinners in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he instructs us to turn over such a man to Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. The second part being as important as the first there. All of our people who are blind are blind because Yahweh has willed that they be blind. He will determine which of them he wishes to awaken. Verse 18. Therefore, you must hear the parable of the sower. Each hearing and not understanding the word of the kingdom... The evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is that having been sown by the road, the seed. The evil one, the Jew and all of his false doctrines and calumnious lies, those who do not grasp the truth of the word, they are the most susceptible to these things. Verse 20. And that having been sown upon the rocks, this is he hearing the word and immediately receiving it with joy, yet it does not have root in him, but it is temporary, and upon tribulational persecution coming on account of the word, he is immediately entrapped. Root in the word comes only through a study of the word itself. If your knowledge is deep, because you have studied, you will not be easily shaken. If you believe the message, and I've seen this happen many times, but your knowledge is shallow because you haven't really studied, whether you, no matter how well you believed it or not, you are easily entrapped when you're confronted by the schemes of the adversary, not knowing how to answer his questions, and therefore being caught in seeming contradictions, which are really not contradictions if you've actually studied, the enemy loves best to try to catch us in his own false premises. So a lot of zeal and no study would lead you to become entrapped. Then that having been sown in the thorns, this is he hearing the word, and the cares of this age and the deceit of riches strangle the word, and it becomes fruitless. Read your Bible on Sunday morning, 
and forget every word of what you have heard or read because you are watching football for the rest of the day. That's just one example. We either care for the word and pursue the things of Yahweh, or we can care for the world and pursue worldly things. No man can serve two masters, God and mammon. It just can't happen. Verse 23. But he having been sown upon the good earth, this is he hearing the word and understanding, who surely bears fruit and makes then some a hundredfold, but some sixty and some thirty. So we see that those who are the fruitful in the word are actually the minority of the seed, and the seed being sown here must all be good seed, because Yahweh's law is that thou shalt not sow thy seed, not, I'm sorry, thy field with mingled seed. So we see also that the seed is a single kind and not many kinds. It's all good seed, but some of it lands in bad places. Was that the seed's fault, that it landed in bad places? Comparing ourselves to the seed, we have no control over where we should land, and for that reason alone, Yahweh shall have mercy on us. And therefore, we should not judge good seed to be bad. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Verse 24. He laid forth another parable for them, saying, The kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man having sown good seed in his field. And while the man is sleeping, his enemy came, and had sown tares among the wheat, and departed. And when the grass sprouted and produced fruit, then the tares also had appeared. Then coming forth, the servants of the master of the house said to him, Master, have you not sowed good seed in your field? Then from where does it have tares? But he said to them, A man who is an enemy has done this. Then the servants say to him, Then do you wish that going out we should gather them? But he says, No, lest gathering the tares you may root up the wheat together with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest I shall say to the reapers, Gather the tares first and bind them in cords for which to burn them. Then gather the wheat into my storehouse. As with the parable of the sower, Christ also explains this parable below, and I shall again withhold comment until we can read his explanation. I will only say one thing. Notice that the tares are gathered first and burned into the fire. So much for Tim LaHaye and the rapture crowd. You want to be left behind on that day. Verse 31. He laid forth another parable, saying to them, The kingdom of the heavens is like a grain of mustard, which a man taking sowed in his field, which is indeed the smallest of all the seeds. But when it grows, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a great tree, so that the birds of heaven come and nest in its branches. Adam and Eve were but two. The remnant of Noah was eight. The sons of Jacob were twelve. We were indeed a race with humble beginnings. Yet we became a great civilization with achievements 
that have surpassed anything that the non-white races and those who have preceded us have ever done. Actually, most of them have no achievements. In fact, it is because of our achievements that the non-white races are even able to exist today in any significant numbers. Anything and everything that they have, which is worthy of note, they have obtained from white men. Today, they all flock into our lands and insist upon a share in our fruits. Therefore, the non-whites are the birds of heaven which nest in our branches. I feel that the metaphor here is appropriate since it is apparent to me that the other races have their origins in the bastardization of the fallen angels as it is described in the Enoch literature. Therefore, they literally are the birds of heaven. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of the heavens is like leaven, which a woman taking has hidden in three measures of flour until when it has all been leavened. You do not see the leaven in the flour. If the leaven is imagined to be that seed which hears the word of Yahweh and in listening actually bears fruit, then the leaven surely cannot be distinguished either by or among men. The children of Israel were dispersed amongst the other Adamic nations. They were the leaven in the flour. By the time of Christ, the Romans, the Parthians, and the Scythians, those three tribes controlled the Oikumene. They controlled the entire formerly Adamic world. I say formerly Adamic because other Adamic tribes had controlled that world before then. But the Israelites had come to control the entire known world by the time of Christ, because the Scythians, the Parthians, and the Romans, and, and a lot of the Greek tribes actually were descendants of the children of Israel. All these things, Yahshua had spoken in parables to the crowds. And without a parable, he spoke nothing to them, that that which was spoken to the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, I shall open my mouth in parables. I shall bellow things kept secret from the foundation of society. This is a quote, it's really a paraphrase, from Psalm 78. There's a crucial, crucial difference. Psalm 78 is a very long psalm, so here I will only read the first few verses. Verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, children of Israel, of course, and nobody else, who should arise and declare them to their children, 
that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This is important. And might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. We see that the psalm discusses things which were hidden and which were handed down, but Yahshua Christ tells us that these things were indeed hidden from the beginning. The perceived disparity, I believe, is simply this. Because people, the people that were handing down these traditions and these scriptures, did not know the actual meanings and implications of the things which were being transmitted through the scripture until Christ finally revealed them to us. I must note, as an aside, that the first four verses of this psalm are wanting in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're just lost, right? They were destroyed. Let me read at this point Proverbs 26.7 and and 26.9. The legs of the lame are not equal. So is a parable in the mouth of fools. As a thorn goes up in the hand of a drunkard, so is a parable in the mouth of fools. We should certainly take care with how we interpret the parables so as not to be a fool. Verse 36. Then leaving the crowds, he had gone into the house, and his students came forth to him, saying, Elucidate for us the parable of the tares in the field. Now, all of this is not a mistake, right? That Christ is saying that he has come to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world or the society, which is the Adamic world. It's not a mistake that we could interpret the parable of the wheat and tares in the manner that we're going to interpret it. It's often Christian identity, especially two seed line Christian identity, is often criticized because the devil really isn't explained the way we interpret the New Testament, we don't find those explanations in the Old Testament. Well, here it's pretty clear. We see the devil in the Old Testament. He's mentioned on occasion, but the Old Testament really isn't concentrating on the devil. And and the Old Testament, while, while it's true, it's very clear that the children of Cain can be traced down through the Canaanites and down through the Edomites in Scripture all the way to the first century Judeans and and today to many of the Jewish people and and many of the Arab people and and other peoples of the Mediterranean that certainly descended from these same old children of Cain. It's not spelled out explicitly in the Old Testament, but the evidence is certainly there. People just didn't see it as clearly as they should have, and and surely that is Yahweh's will. But Yahshua Christ came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the society. 
elucidate for us the parable of the tares of the field. And responding, he said, He sowing the good seed is the son of man. Now the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the false accuser, or the devil. And the harvest is the consummation of the age, and the reapers are the messengers, or the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. The Son of Man shall send his messengers, and they shall gather from his kingdom all offenses and those creating lawlessness. And they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He having an ear must hear. To interpret this parable in the light of Yahshua's explanation of it, let's now go back to the original version which he gave before his explanation. The kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man having sown good seed in his field. This man is the son of man, and it is evident in many other scriptures that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh himself. The field being the garden, the, the Adamic society that he planted. Verse 25. And while the man is sleeping... This is a reference to the Sabbath, the Sabbath after those first six days of creation. His enemy, Satan, was already cast out into the earth, Satan and the serpent being the same entity, as we learn from Revelation chapter 12. His enemy came and had sown tares among the wheat and departed. This can only have happened in Genesis chapter 3. While we have a race-mixing event in Genesis chapter 6, this began in Genesis chapter 3 with the seduction of Eve and with the birth of Cain. Genesis 4.1, notwithstanding that verse is corrupted, it can't even honestly be translated because of its corrupted grammar. There's much evidence that Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 is indeed a verse with problems. There are many other witnesses in Scripture that Cain is not Adam's son. And when the grass sprouted and produced fruit, then the tares also had appeared. The race of Cain, later in the Bible known as the Kenites, described in Genesis chapter 4. Then coming forth, the servants of the master of the house said unto him, Master, have you not sowed good seed in your field? Then from where does it have tares? But he said to them, A man who is an enemy has done this, the serpent. Then the servants say to him, Then do you wish that going out we should gather them? But he says, No, lest gathering the tares you may root up the wheat together with them. In other words, the servants themselves may confuse some of the wheat and the tares, since they both look so similar that until the time they are fully ripe, they can't be told apart. Today, because they have so much Adamic blood, a lot of the descendants of Cain look just like white 
Adamic people. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest I shall say to the reapers, gather the tares first, and bind them in cords for which to burn them, then gather the wheat unto my storehouse. It is inevitable that all of the tares are going to be destroyed, but they're going to be destroyed at the command of God and not at the command of man. Therefore, it's vain for us to advocate any action or taking of God's vengeance into our own hands. It's just something we should never, it's a trap we should never fall into. All who have fallen into that trap have failed. All of the wheat are going to be preserved. In spite of what the Pharisees and the Catholics say. There are no good tares and there is no bad wheat. The parable of the tares must be a reference to the events which occurred from the seduction of Eve in Genesis chapter 3 up even through the time of the flood which destroyed much of the Adamic race, but which did not destroy the wicked races such as the Kenites and the Rephaim. The races of the Kenites and the Rephaim can be traced all the way into the books of Kings and Chronicles. And during all that time, they mixed themselves not only with the Canaanites and with non-Adamic races, which is evident from Scripture, those races being mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, verses 19 to 21 and elsewhere. They also later mixed themselves with the Ishmaelites and the Edomites, and then with some of the Israelites and other families of other Adamic races. For this reason, Yahshua told certain of the Judeans that they were of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. Cain, like his father, was also a devil. John chapter 8. Yahshua also told certain of the Judeans that their race was responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Abel forward, and only Cain could be responsible for the blood of Abel. Therefore, their race must have descended from Cain, and they cannot be Israelites who are descended from Seth. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. John, in his first epistle, Chapter 3 also makes reference to this same thing and talks about Cain being of the devil, for which reason he slew his brother. There is no word for half-brother in Hebrew or Greek. These Judeans, the Canaanite, Edomite Jews, are those who claim to be Judah and are not, but are of the assembly of the adversary, the synagogue of Satan, of Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. For this reason, Paul expresses a care only for those in Israel who are his kinsmen according to the flesh, his racial kin. And Paul contrasts Jacob and Esau in Judea as vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. The Jews rejecting Christ 
were children of Esau and Canaan. And for that reason, Christ tells them in John chapter 10, you are not my sheep. You don't believe me because you are not my sheep. The phrase, all offenses and those creating lawlessness, again refers to these same people. These people are offenses because they are bastards. Their very existence is a transgression of the laws of God. The children of God are not imputed sin because their seed remains within them. Their race is pure, and therefore God will not impute sin to them. 1 John 3, 9. In the grand scheme of things, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the corruption of God's creation, because that is the way which leads to death. Those who are of a corrupt seed cannot have eternal life. What we commonly refer to as two-seed-line Christian-Israel identity is the only Christianity which, when it's properly understood, recognizes all of these scriptures and many others as being in absolute truth and agreement. Verse 44. The kingdom of the heavens is like a treasure hidden in a field, which finding a man hides, and from his joy goes and sells all things, whatever he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a merchant man seeking a beautiful pearl and finding one very valuable pearl, having departed, sold all things, whatever he had, and bought it. First, let me say that someone recently insisted upon forcing me to interpret the world, the, the word field here in, in verse 44, as it is in the parable of the wheat and the tares, to mean the world. The premise was that the words had to be interpreted consistently throughout all of the parables. If the premise is accepted, the conclusion here is that Christ bought the world, since he must also be the man. But the conclusion is wrong, because the scriptures tell us in many other places that Christ, with his blood, bought only the children of Israel out from the world. He did not buy the world. Therefore, the premise that the field must be the world, must also be wrong, and it is. If we look at the first two parables in this chapter, the word seed appears in both of them, but and both of them are explained by Yahshua Christ himself. But in each of them, it represents something different. The word seed represents the gospel in the parable of the sower, but it represents people in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Therefore, if seed represents two different things in the first two parables, field can represent two different things in these previous two parables. And I would insist that they must because Christ bought Israel and not the world. Yet, it is also evident that this parable does not necessarily have Christ as its subject at all, 
because neither do all of these parables have Christ as the subject. The parable of the leaven has a woman as the subject. For want of relevant metaphors in Scripture which involve the word pearl, the same gentleman likened the pearl to the treasure and also insisted that it must represent Israel being the treasure hidden in the world which was bought. Indeed, Israel is often likened to treasure in the writings of the prophets. However, we have seen the premise concerning the world to be wrong, because nowhere in the scripture does it state that Christ bought the world. Christ only bought Israel. Yet there is another way to interpret the pearl or the treasure. For the scriptures, in the scriptures, the word treasure is also often used to describe the wisdom of God. And I will quote three. Proverbs fifteen sixteen. In the house of righteous of the righteous there is much treasure, but the revenues of the wicked is trouble. That treasure is not earthly money, gold and silver treasure in the house of the righteous. Proverbs verse chapter twenty one verse twenty. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spends it up. Isaiah 33, verses 5 and 6. Yahweh is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. And strength of I'm sorry, and strength of salvation. The fear of Yahweh is his treasure. We see that the fear of Yahweh, the awe of Yahweh, respect for God, is his treasure. Therefore, I must interpret this prophecy in this manner. I'm sorry, this parable in this manner. When a man realizes the truth of the gospel and the magnificence of his inheritance in the gospel, he lays aside all of his other interests in life. The worldly interests, such as hobbies and sports and entertainments and so on, and he pursues the truth of the gospel along with what things it requires of him. The truth of the gospel, both then and now, is certainly a pearl hidden in a wide field of nonsense. And that is how I interpret this prophecy. That the man finds, and he at first hides the pearl, shows both its recognized importance, and also that he knew not to share the truth of the gospel with others, until he himself possessed it firmly. The prudent should be silent, in other words. Yet I would not insist that we all must interpret this particular parable in that manner. I will not tell you that you must understand it as I do. Some parables are rather clear, 
and concise in their meaning, lining up very neatly with Scripture. And others are open to different interpretations because the symbols employed are not so clear to us. Yet we should not create doctrines from parables. Rather, a parable is an allegory which must be interpreted so as to support and to reinforce doctrines which we have already learned from Scripture. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a net. Having been cast into the sea, and it gathers from out of every race, which, when it is full, bringing up on the shore and sitting, they gather the good ones into vessels, but the rotten ones they cast out. Thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. The messengers shall go, and they shall separate the wicked from the midst of the righteous, and they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fish are gathered from every race, not only from Jews and Christians, as some fools insist. The word is kind in the King James Version, which also goes back to race, but since the Greek word is genos, it's very clearly race, and it's race here. The division of the fish must be along racial lines and not along behavioral lines, or the word genos or race would never have been mentioned in the first place since it would not matter. Yet here it is obvious that race does indeed matter, and since behavior is not even considered, it's behavior that does not matter in this context. The only creation of man, which was ever specifically called good in the scripture, is the creation of the Adamic man, as the creation is described in the first chapter of Genesis. To digress for a minute, I must say that simply because the phrase beast of the field is used in later scripture as an allegorical pejorative, for certain two-legged races of presumed non-Adamic people, that does not mean that they were the real beasts of the field of the Genesis creation, any more than it means that other hybrids, such as mules or mongrel dogs and cats, which fit that same technical description, were a part of that creation. The only logical explanation for their being described here, both good and ra races and bad races, when every race is considered, is that there are races here which Yahweh did not create. As he says elsewhere, that every plant which he did not plant shall be rooted up. Furthermore, according to the word of God, no man is righteous of himself. But only Israel is justified or rendered righteous, and that by God. That is the mercy which he has on his chosen people. We see such a thing prophesied of no other people anywhere in Scripture. And Christ himself professed coming only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
The sacrifice in his blood cleanses only the people of Israel. Only Israel is justified, and the meaning of the Greek word as well as the Hebrew means to be just or to be righteous. Here I shall read parts of Isaiah chapter 45, verses 4 through 25. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah is addressing in this last 26 chapters of his book, he's addressing the people in the isles of the sea. He's addressing the people on the coastlands of Europe. He's addressing the dispersed of Israel who were put off from God and from citizenship in his kingdom in the Assyrian dispersions. So these, this chapter has to be understood in that context. That they may know him from the rising of the sun, or the east, and from the west, that there is none else beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe to him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashions it, What do you make? Or thy work, he has no hands. Woe unto him that says to his father, What did you beget? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? Thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands command ye me. I have made the earth and created Adam, and created man upon it. That word is Adam. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, the people who were put off in captivity, not for the price nor reward, saith Yahweh of hosts, not for price or reward. Yahshua Christ freed us from that captivity. Thus saith Yahweh, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee in chains, they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else, there is no God, meaning no other God. Verily thou art a God that hides thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed, meaning the Egyptians and the Sabians and the men of Ethiopia. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go into confusion. That means 
that they shall go to race mixing. They shall go into confusion, those who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. There are no exceptions there. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it, he has created it, not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of earth. I have not, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, a reference to the dispersed of Israel. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. The Pharisees, the modern day Pharisees, who try to tell who try to tell us that bad Israelites are going into the lake of fire, they have basically set up a God of wood, a God of their own image, and they pray to a God that cannot save, because Yahweh said that he will save all of his people, period. There is no exception. Tell ye and bring them near, yeah. Let them take counsel together, who hath declared this from ancient time, who has told it from that time, have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior? There is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, and indeed every Israelite knee shall bow to Yahweh. Every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him men shall, shall men come, men being added in the text there, maybe shall they come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed, all the offspring of Israel be justified and shall glory. That word justified means rendered righteous, to be made righteous. All the seed of Israel, all of the offspring of Israel shall be rendered righteous in Yahweh. There are no exceptions. With this, I will read the parable of the net once more. Verse 47 Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a net, having been cast into the sea, and it gathers from out of every race, which when it is full, bringing up on a shore and sitting, they gather the good ones, those of the good race, into vessels. But the rotten ones, those not of the good race, they cast out. Thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. The messengers shall go out, and they shall separate the wicked from amongst the midst of the righteous. The righteous being Israel, because 
all the seed of Israel shall be justified. And they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word justified in Isaiah 45.25 is Strong's number 6663. And it means to be just or to be righteous. The promise of righteousness in Yahshua Christ belongs only to the children of Israel. And it belongs to all of the offspring of the children of Israel without exception. It is Adamic man which Yahweh created, not formed, created. He formed him also. It's only a synonym upon the earth, as we see in verse 12 of Isaiah 45. Yet other Adamic nations have long gone off into confusion, which infers race mixing. As we see mentioned here of Egypt, the Sabians, and the Ethiopians in verses 14 through 17. Those people are represented today among the Arab and Negro races, and they are indeed in a state of confusion. Here we have a vivid description of the good kind of fish and of some of the bad kind of fish, we also see that all of the children of Israel are justified in Isaiah 45.25. There's no getting around that. If you want to throw one Israelite into the lake of fire, you are in opposition to the word of God. You're in opposition to the word of Christ, where he says that every manner of sin shall be forgiven men. You're in opposition to Paul's epistles where he says all Israel shall be saved. You're in opposition to Isaiah 45:25, which says that all of the offspring of Israel shall be justified. Therefore, only Israel can be the righteous among the wicked in the parable of the net. It's that simple. This leaves us with the stark scriptural truth that only Israel shall be preserved, and all other races out of every race are cast into the fire, which is the lake of fire. There are false teachers in identity who refute the parable of the words of Christ and teach a different gospel, as Paul says, they are accursed. Today, all of the world's races have representatives among the children of Israel. They're all here in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, they all must be the wicked who are going to be separated from the midst of the righteous as the parable promises. Because the non-Adamic races as well as the mixed races are bad races, they cannot ever be imagined in the vanity of men to have ever been called good by Yahweh, that's the simple fact of Scripture. I will never be ashamed of it. That's what the Word of God says. Woe to you who are lukewarm. He will spew you out of his mouth. Verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They say to him, yes. And he said to them, for this reason, 
Every scribe being instructed in the kingdom of the heavens is like a man, a master of the house, who issues from his treasury new things and old things. It is the Spirit of God which gives man, which gives a man new revelation from that same scripture which men before him have read, but did not fully realize the meanings of. We must only be careful to note that those revelations must not refute the plain meaning of any other scripture. Or we deceive ourselves since they are not true revelations at all. We must remain humble. And it came to pass when Yahshua had finished these parables. He removed from there. And having come into his fatherland, he taught them in their assembly hall. So for them to be astonished, even to say, from where in this man is this wisdom and these abilities? Is this not the son of a craftsman? Is not his mother called Mariam and his father, his brothers, Jacobus and Joseph and Simon and Judah? And are they not, I'm sorry, and are not his sisters all here with us? So we see that Christ had brothers and sisters by his father, the craftsman, after he was born. In other words, after the virgin birth, Joseph and Mary sired several other children, and, and at least six in this verse. This cannot be spiritualized as the Catholic Church would like to have it. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She was a virgin when she conceived by Yahweh, she went on to have at least six other children with Joseph, the craftsman, the father, the earthly father of Yahshua Christ. So we see four brothers and a plural sisters. It might be more than two. So Yahshua had at least six half-siblings, there being, of course, no word for half-sister in Greek. or half-brother. So from where in this man are all these things? And they were offended by him. But Yahshua said to them, A prophet is not dishonored except in his own fatherland and household. And he did not do many works of power there on account of their disbelief. He ceased from, from, from his dispensation of favor upon these people because they did not believe him. The people imagined that they knew Yahshua, they knew him, they imagined that they knew him from knowing his background and the humble state of his earthly family, that he had no means by which to acquire such learning. After all, he was not schooled in one of their universities. That's the worldly perception that we have today. You can't be smart. You didn't go to Harvard. You didn't go to Princeton. You can't know that because you didn't go to school. Well, we see that over and over. It's it's not uncommon, and it certainly hasn't changed in thousands of years. That's all for tonight. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for being here. I will be back, Yahweh willing, next week with Matthew chapter 14. On Monday, I am going to discuss on, on Christagenia.net, on a chat server, I am going to discuss... Israel's relationship to the law under the new covenant and 
I will do that from the chapters of the first seven chapters of Romans, I believe, and, and from Galatians chapters three and four. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.